Scripture says, a psalm of praise of David. I will extol you, my God, O King. I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you. I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and highly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works I will meditate. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts, and I will tell of your greatness. They shall eagerly utterly, they shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness, and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all his works. All your works shall give thanks to you, or praise you, O Lord, and your godly ones shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power, to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord sustains all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. The Lord keeps all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and all flesh shall bless his holy name forever and ever. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, again, we're thankful for your word, for this opportunity to worship you. Pray you'll bless the word of God to everyone who hears today. Praise in Christ's name. Amen. When we open our Bibles to any passage, it doesn't matter what the passage is, any passage at all, we are standing on holy ground. We need to have, I wish that we had such a deep reverence for the word. I, I think this generation has missed the boat on that completely. This is the book, the only book inspired by God. So that makes it the most special book of all, the most sacred book of all, the only real sacred book on the planet. All its pages are filled with divine truth. Every single page, all its pages are spiritually profitable. 2 Timothy 3.15 says, the Holy Scriptures are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. The scriptures teach that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man Absolutely no one at all can come to the Father except through him. Scriptures teach the way of salvation. 2 Timothy 3.17 says the scripture is able to make the man of God or anyone belonging to God competent, uh, equipped for every good work. What does the believer need to be spiritually equipped to do the work of God in a way that pleases God? He needs to be a person of the word. So all the scripture is profitable, every bit of it, every single bit of it, even Leviticus, a lot of people don't like to read Leviticus. But there's something there for us in the scripture. But there are some passages that are just overloaded with gems. They're like a diamond that sparkles whichever way you turn it. Psalm 145 is like that. You can see it by reading it. It's like entering the gates of heaven itself. Now the richness of this subject matter, it's so rich that it lifts our typical uh, preoccupation with the daily grind of life, 
to another a level. It's, uh, it at least lifts us to our preoccupation with, our, with the uh, majesty of our, of our glorious Christ and Lord. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying we have human responsibilities. We have things that we have to take care of. I understand all that. But I think far too often as believers, we're caught up in our own little world. It's just what's coming around me, what's going on around me. I'm focused on me, focused on our problems, focused on our, our uh, selfish pursuits, even our own self-exaltation. And I think we fail to give the Lord his proper due, his praise that's so deserving. This chapter calls us back to, to that, definitely, without a doubt. In order to live the right perspective toward life, we've got to set our affections on things above, not on things on the earth. Read Psalm 145 when you get a chance on your own and meditate on what it says. And you will have to conclude that we have far too much pettiness in the body of Christ. There's far too much focus on trivial matters, far too little focus on the glory of God, far too focus, much focus on personal agendas, far too little focus on the majesty of God, far too much time spent with a spotlight on us, far too little time spent with a spotlight on Christ. Folks, we need to get our priorities straight. We really do. And this chapter calls us back to this. That means putting the Lord first and glorifying Him in all things. Now, the entire Bible, not only the Psalms, everything in the Scripture speaks to the exaltation of God. Here's just a few examples. I don't have notes. I don't have the show up here. I like to give Mike a hard time about that. I don't have any of that. This is, we're going to go old school today, as I always do, of course. I'm proud of old school. Uh, Listen to a few examples of the scripture here, exalting Christ. Just listen. Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. This is after the Red Sea miracle. It says this, Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord and said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he is hurled into the sea. Verse 11 of Exodus 15 says, Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, Working wonders. Psalm 34, verse 1 through 3. David says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Isaiah 43, 20. The Lord says, listen to this. The Lord says, the people whom I form for myself they will declare my praise. Ephesians 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. In Luke 19, Jimmy read that. whole crowd of people out there with loud voices praising the Lord for all the miracles which they've seen him do. His, Jesus is making his triumphal entry into Jerusalem and people are shouting and they're shouting this. Blessed be the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest. Of course, the Pharisees hated to see and hear people singing the praises of Christ. That's the last thing they wanted to hear. They were too preoccupied with their own self-righteousness. They said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They shouldn't be saying this. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the very stones will cry out. Let's not keep silent about the grandeur and the glory of God. Let this psalm today speak to your heart about the priority of praise. Now, as we look at this psalm today, I want you to notice, first of all, a heartfelt resolution to exalt the Lord in verses 1 and 2. A heartfelt resolution to exalt the Lord. Verse 1, David says, I will extol you, my king, my God, O king. 
I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you. I will praise your name forever and ever. Now, as you probably know, there are many different types of, types of psalms. There are psalms of repentance. David repents in Psalm 51. There are psalms of sorrow, psalms of wisdom, psalms about people making a pilgrimage to the temple, psalms about royalty and others. But this psalm is reserved for one purpose and one purpose only, and that is to bring attention to the Lord who, who is alone is to be praised. He alone is to be held in the highest esteem. You know there's 72 psalms listed as being written by David, 72 of the psalms written by David. Many of those psalms devote some space, at least, to the praise of God, but this is the only psalm of David. Look at, the, look at right before verse 1 there in your, in your Bible there. That's, by the way, what's before, the superscription before verse 1 is inspired. This is the only psalm of David to be titled a psalm of praise, a psalm of praise of David, of all the psalms he wrote. Now, that's probably because in this psalm, there is such a concentrated effort to exalt the Lord, as you can see as we read it. Spurgeon referred to this psalm as the crown jewel of praise. David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, really knocks it out of the park on this theme in this chapter. But many others besides Spurgeon have recognized the, the, the same thing about this chapter. Psalm 145 has also been called the exquisite psalm. It's been called the glory of the Old Testament. It's been called a magnificent ode of praise. It's been called this noble doxology. And it is that. And the more I look at this chapter, the more I realize I think I need to preach this every week. Or I need to read it every week myself. I, I'm very convicted by this chapter, by the way, just so you'll know. Treasure this psalm in your heart, by the way, and you'll find yourself treasuring the Lord. As you know, the psalms were the hymn book of Israel, and so that's what they sang. They sang these psalms, and we can read this, we can study it, and we can find out well, what kind of content should we use when we worship the Lord together? What should that content be like when we come together for worship? Now, many churches, many professing Christians, they have the mistaken idea that we're here to be entertained. And churches, you've seen this on the internet, you've seen the, the appeal a lot of churches make, we're appealing to your flesh, we're appealing to the fact that we want to entertain you, that's what they think, but that's not what God thinks at all. We're here for the express purpose of worshiping the Lord, of exalting His name in our music, in our worship, in our preaching, all that we do, it's all for one purpose, to exalt His holy name. Let me ask you a question, why did you come to church today? I hope you came to worship the Lord. I hope that's your reason. I hope that's your reason every week. David resolved to exalt his Lord. Now, let me, did he do this simply out of duty? Did he do it because I'm, 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 you know, I've got to do this thing, I've got to make this resolution? No, he did it because he loved the Lord. The Lord, as you can read through the, the, the life of David and the Psalms, the Lord was the greatest love of his life, and he wanted God to know that, and he wanted others to know that. It's David's heart. Psalm 145 enables us to look into the heart of David. And what do we find there? We find a man after God's own heart. This is what it looks like to be a man after God's own heart, a woman after God's own heart. This, kind, this is the kind of thing it looks like. Psalm 145. This is the purest of activities of all, just giving praise to God. You're not asking for anything. I'm not saying there's wrong with anything. For asking God, God tells us to ask him for things. Nothing wrong with that at all, period. But this is the purest of activities, just giving praise to him, just ascribing glory to his name. This is true worship. We put ourselves aside. 
We focus solely on the Lord and we give him praise for his person and work. Now, as we consider this uh, psalm today, let's think first about the object of his resolution. The object. Verse 1, David says, I will extol you, my, my God, O king. Now, let me explain the word extol. We don't normally use that in our daily conversation. Does anybody say that extol, the word extol in their daily conversation? Probably not at work or anywhere, right? To extol the Lord is to give him his rightful place. It's to, it's to elevate him, to lift him up. It reminds me of the scene in Isaiah 6 where Isaiah has a vision of the Lord as holiness. And Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted. I like the well-known King James Version better on this verse. I saw the Lord high and lifted up. I saw him high and lifted up. I extolled him. This is what David means by extolling the Lord to ascribe him in the place of highest honor. David has a very personal relationship with the Lord. You can see that it comes through so clearly in his writings and as it does in this psalm. Everything in his life seems to revolve around the Lord. He's always talking to the Lord, even his repentance of sin. Because to David, God is very personal. And yet at the same time, David recognizes that God is the king. He's sovereign over Sovereign ruler over the entire universe. And every believer can, sitting in front of me can say the same thing. On the one hand, God, he's, he's my God, David says in verse 1. He's my God. Very personal relationship. On the other hand, he's the sovereign king of the universe. Now remember who we're talking about here. David knew something about being a king. David himself was a king. King of Israel. He issued decrees for his people to follow. He enacted... He uh, enforced the laws of the land. He had to do that. Sometimes you'll read in the Psalms, uh, these bloodthirsty murderers need to be killed and things of that nature. He's got to enforce the laws of the land because these people are murderers and they need to be put to death. And that was the, that was the penalty. And so he did that. He made decisions that affected his, his, his citizens. But David, the earthly king, recognized he served a heavenly king. He didn't think he was the top dog. There was nobody above him. He knew that God was above him. He serves the heavenly king. So David, the king of Israel, worships and praises the Lord, the king of glory. But unfortunately, there are many who don't recognize his authority. We know them. We, we talk to them. You see it in the world. You hear it on TV all the time. Many who don't recognize the authority of God, of Christ, they feel about him the same way the evil people felt about Christ in the Gospels. They said, like in Luke 19, they said, we will not have this man to rule over us. We don't want him. We don't want his rule. They rejected him as king of their lives. What they didn't realize is that one day every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Christ, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But for the one who truly knows God as David does, even as many of us do, we, we do want his rule in our life. We do want him to control our lives. We're only too glad to be a part of his kingdom. So we address him as my king. Oh, king. He's my God and he's oh, king. According to David, according to us. And I hope everyone listening today can say with me, my God, he's my God. I hope you can say that. Think about, think about your own life. Are you able to say that? He's my God. He's my Christ. He's my Lord. His spirit indwells in me. This is the one we are resolved to praise. By the way, if he's not your Lord and you want him to be, you want to know him, I'll be glad to talk to you after the service today about that very thing. Notice next the determination of, of his, his resolution. His object of his resolution is God. The determination of his resolution in verses 1 and 2 Look at those verses again. If you look at those verses carefully, you'll notice a phrase repeated four times. That phrase is, I will. 
David says, I will extol you. I will bless your name. I will bless you. I will praise your name. I will, I will, I will, I will. Then in verse 6, I will tell of your greatness. Verse 21, my mouth will speak the praise of the Lord. You can see David's determination forcefully coming through his words here. I, I mean, it's almost as if you can feel his devotion. You can feel it. You can feel his passion to give God the glory. You can sense his enthusiasm for the Lord, uh, his love for the Lord. David's heart is clearly uh, set on magnifying God. By the way, you know David was called the man after God's own heart. I believe, you say, well, how could David be called the man after God's own heart? He sinned and did some evil things. Yes, but I believe one of the reasons why he's called a man after God's own heart is because of the priority he put on praise, the praise of God. His, he was, his heart was totally devoted to God, and God knew that, fully devoted to God. What do men and women do whose heart are fully God's, devoted to God? They praise him. They glorify him. Now, many people make resolutions each year, which many people keep for about two weeks, and then they say, well, that was a bit much. shouldn't have resolved any of that. You know, but you, you all remember Jonathan Edwards back in the 1700s, who at the age of 18, the age of 18, made 70 resolutions, I believe, that he wanted to keep all of his life. And to my knowledge, he tried his best to keep those all of his life. <clears throat> his first resolution, by the way, how many people at the age of 18 made a resolution like this? Listen to this. His first resolution. Resolved that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory. I'm going to do whatever I think is best that will glorify God. How many of you ever made that resolution? Sounds like David. Psalm 145. Men and women of God are people of resolve. They determine in their hearts to exalt the Lord. They do that not out of duty, a sense of duty, but they do that because they love the Lord and their heart is overflowing with praise the Lord. That's what they want to do. Now you can see this psalm takes us to another level. Of spirituality, it really does. Note the consistency of his resolution in verse 2. Consistency. Every day, David says, I will bless you. How often should we bless the Lord? On special occasions? On Sunday at church? When you get a raise? Usually we're, we're real good about, oh, guess what? I got a raise. This great thing happened. This one, I got a bunch of money. And guess what? Now I'm happy. I'm praise the Lord, right? But what, you know, what if. Somebody says, you know, I'm really having a bad day today. I lost money, financial downturn, the stock market went south on me, lost the 401, remember where everybody lost their 401k a while back, or they lost a lot of it? Lost a lot of 401k. What do I do now? Verse 2, every day I will bless you. We bless God how often? Every single day, regardless of circumstances. That's what, that's what David said I'm going to do. Is not every day another day to praise God? God gave us another day to praise Him. I love Psalm 113, verse 3. It says this, From the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, the Lord's name is to be praised. Have you ever thought of your entire day as being one in which this is an opportunity to bless the Lord all day? That's a different... That's a different level than we normally think. Think how our lives would be different if we, if we, instead of complaining about things that come our way, we're very good at that, 
uh, about our circumstances, we would praise God for his presence with us. You know what? I'm just going to praise God for being with me today. A lot of you know Warren Wiersbe. He's now deceased. He used to preach at Moody Church in Chicago. Warren Wiersbe said, to, the, to a praising saint, a, a saint that praises God, the circumstances of life are a window. They're a window through which he sees God. To a complaining saint, this, these same circumstances are only a mirror in which he sees himself. That's why he complains. Ask yourself the question, what will it be today, complaining or praising? Where's your focus today? Where's your focus today? Where will it be on, better yet, where will your focus be on Monday? Back to the grind. Making a daily practice of praise is a life-changing experience. It really is. And then notice the permanency of this resolve. David has, has this heartfelt rev- resolution to exalt the Lord, and it's also a permanent one. Uh, for David, exalting God, exalting God was not just a daily pursuit. It was an eternal one. His plan is to bless God. What does it say in verses 1 and 2? Forever and ever, it says, twice. Not just for time, but for eternity. You know, when I read this, I thought of a preacher who is now also now deceased. I can only know preachers who are deceased, by the way. Uh, they, uh, I like the guys in church history anyway. I love church history. But uh, there was a preacher years ago in Dallas, Texas, by the name of W.A. Criswell. You heard of W.A. I know Eric has. How many people heard of W.A. Criswell? He used to be a, a well-known preacher in Dallas, preached for years there, First Baptist Church of Dallas. He preached through, uh, he took 17, 18 years to preach through the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation, Eric, one book after the next, nonstop. That's what he did. And uh, people would say, when they joined his church, they would say, look back, oh, I, jo- I joined in Isaiah. I joined in 1 Timothy, that kind of thing. But that meant he would also preach to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, one after the other, back to back. A lot of guys will not do that. I know why. They're looking for variety. Same thing. I, I've thought that many times. I understand what they're thinking. Uh, but as you know, the four Gospels are about the person and work of Christ. All about the focus is on Christ completely and all that happened to him. Someone asked W.A. Criswell, well, so what was it like preaching four Gospels in a row, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? How, how did you feel about that in a consecutive manner? And he said this, well... I got to everlastingly brag on Jesus. And so in, in the, through the Gospel of Matthew, he spent his time bragging on Jesus. And through the Gospel of Mark, he spent his time bragging on Jesus. And through the Gospel of Luke, he spent his time bragging on Jesus. And through the Gospel of John, he spent his time bragging on Jesus. And that's what he did. And I don't know <coughs> how long it took him, how many years it took him to finish all that. But I do know he died in 2002. And I can, after reading about his life and his testimony, his godly testimony... I can assure you, he's still bragging about Jesus to this very day, and will be for eternity. That was David's plan. I want to bless you, how long? Forever and ever. He envisioned a permanent, a permanent exaltation of the Lord, not temporarily, not a temporary one. What do you think is happening in heaven? People are there praising God. For example, Revelation 4.11 gives us a hint. I know I'm reading these verses. Just listen to them because we don't have time to turn, turn to them. In heaven, Revelation 4.11, Worthy are you, our, our, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. That's an ongoing activity in heaven. It begins here in the here and now. And it continues through eternity. But here's some advice. Don't wait till you get to heaven. 
to start that. Don't wait until then. Start now. Be resolved in your heart to exalt our, our God and our King. So David has this heartfelt resolution to exalt the Lord. But that's followed up by verses 3 to 20, in which there are countless reasons to exalt the Lord. Countless reasons. Um, as we read through the psalm, we'll notice such a large variety of words that describe our role, our role in praising and exalting God. We'll read through some of these verses, but we're called upon to extol him, lift him up, elevate him. We've already seen that word. We're called upon to bless him in this chapter. We're called upon to praise him, to declare him, to talk of him, to speak of him, to tell of him, to utter things about him, to shout joyfully of him, to make him known. This is our privilege. And we won't, run, we won't run out of things to say uh, either. We won't, we won't do that because the Lord has given us so many reasons to praise his name. You know, you remember the song Matt Redman wrote some years ago entitled, Bless the Lord, O My Soul. In that song, he says there are 10,000 reasons he can find to praise the Lord, by which he means there are countless reasons to praise the Lord. David would agree. Now, in this psalm, let's look at some of those. David didn't list 10,000 reasons in this psalm. That'd be 10,000 points. You ever heard of a 10,000-point sermon? <laughs> David would agree. I heard a 42-point sermon one day. Uh, David would agree, yes, this is, this is how it is. There's countless reasons. In this psalm, let's look at some of those reasons. First of all, we should exalt him for his greatness. We should exalt him for his greatness. Look at verse 3. Great is the Lord and highly to be praised, some translations say, and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works I will meditate. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts and I will tell of your greatness. And what word stands out here? You can see the word greater greatness in connection with the Lord mentioned at least three times in this section. Four emphasis. As we consider his greatness, let's look first of all at the greatness of his person. Verse 3, great is the Lord. Now in our generation, uh, there, especially our generation, people are, have no issue with declaring, proclaiming their own greatness. They do it all the time. There are politicians who proclaim their own greatness. There are athletes who have no hesitation about telling you how great of an athlete they are. In every walk of life, people will brag on themselves if it suits their purposes. They do it all the time. But when we compare ourselves to God, there is no human being who is great. Think about that. And even if some people are considered great due because they have expertise in a certain field, they're great in this particular field, maybe they're a great doctor, no one can be considered great in every aspect of their life. No one can. With people, there's always a catch. There's always a history. There's a sin nature. There's something in the background that's negative. Uh, there's an issue of some kind with people, but not with God. Not with God. He's, there's only pure greatness. Greatness in the truest sense of the word. Uh, greatness in every aspect, every single aspect of his being. God is great. Great is the Lord. Just the way it is. Now, I would be less than honest not to mention a verse in Genesis that does say there's an aspect of man that is great. Do you know that? I want to be honest with you. That's what the scripture says. There is an aspect of mankind that is great. Genesis 6, 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. That's so all people, all of us, have one area which we can truly declare our greatness. We should brag about this. 
we're wicked sinners. Well, that's hardly worth bragging about. Nobody, who wants to say that? I'm a wretched sinner. Nobody wants to say that. Compare us to Christ in the New Testament, of whom it is said in 1 Peter 2.22, he committed no sin. We're great in wickedness. He's great in holiness. He committed no sin. Now, when you think of it in those terms, why would we ever, why would we ever consider ourselves to be anything more than sinners who needed the Savior? It's, it's God who is great. The verse says, great is the Lord. Let's get that right. And since God is great, it's given that our praise of him should be great also. Shouldn't the praise we give him be as high as the greatness of his, of his glory? Shouldn't, or at least we can attempt it. We can never attain it. We can attempt it, though. High praises of God. Now, if we have a high view of God, we should, we should be able to speak the high praises of God. We should lavish praise on him. This is, this is what, I, I don't think this is happening in our Christian world. I don't think this is happening, really, seriously. And this is what should be happening. This is a life-changing thing. Verse 3 goes on to say, God's greatness is unsearchable. It's unsearchable. One person uh, uh, paraphrased it this way. The full extent of God's greatness and power is beyond human comprehension. Can't really even grasp it fully. The scripture gives us a basic understanding of God. Yes, we can never plumb the depths of God's greatness. We can never plumb those depths. He's, he's infinite. It eludes us. And Job says in Job 9.10, God does great things, unfathomable things, things we can't really grasp, and wondrous works without number. Psalm, Psalm 106.2. Who can speak of the mighty deeds of the Lord? Or who can show forth all his praise? Can anybody do that? We even attain to showing forth all his praise? In other words, no mortal is even adequate to praise him to his full extent uh, that he should be. Thankfully, he accepts our less, than, uh, our less than our best praise because he knows we're but dust. Paul said in Romans 11.33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Now, Mike's going to preach on that soon. It's in connection with Israel and that and election in that, in that section. But nevertheless, his ways are unsearchable, unfathomable. He's great in his person. Secondly, there, there's the greatness of his works. The things God does are great. Not only his character, his person, his attributes, all that he is as a person, self-existence, his wisdom, his love and power and all these things, but also is what he does is are referred to as great. Verse 4, it refers to God's mighty acts. Uh, verse 5, his wonderful works. Verse 6, his awesome acts. Similar language is used of the works of Christ in the New Testament. You know, in Luke chapter 8, Christ met up with a demon-possessed man, and he delivered him from that demon possession. And when, he, when that was over with, Luke 8 reports this. It says this, that man went away proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. Jesus had done great things for him, and he wanted to tell everybody, just like David does in this song. But we don't want to keep that knowledge to ourselves. We don't want to keep the knowledge of God's greatness to ourselves. We want to pass it on to others. Look at verse 4. One generation shall praise your acts to what? To another. And shall declare your mighty acts. Each generation is responsible to teach the next generation the mighty acts of God. If the generations in the past had not communicated the great acts of God, the things he's done, the, the God's truth to, to the generations that follow, and ultimately to our generation, where would that leave us? If they not told us all this, 
But sadly, many in history have failed to pass, they failed to pass the baton to the next generations. God's going to see to it that his truth gets, gets out, but let's not be that generation that fails to communicate the praise of our glorious God to the next generation. We have a duty to our children. Think about parents, think about this. We have a duty to our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren to praise God for all his mighty acts. We should be doing this. We must tell them of the mighty acts the Lord performed in the scriptures. So they'll know to praise God. We must tell them all of all the great acts he's done in our own life. We must tell them of all the acts, the mighty acts he can do in their life. He can save them. He can change their lives. Otherwise, how will they know? How will they have a high view of God if we don't tell them? How do we expect them to know who God is unless we tell them? This is serious business. Parents, pastors out there, grandparents, Sunday school teachers, anyone in a position to influence the next generation, we better be doing it. You can bet the world's going to do it. They're doing it right now. All you got to do is, is turn on the news and see that. They're doing their utmost to influence this generation with transgenderism. That's every day anymore. Drag queens, all that stuff that happened in June. Homosexuality, you hear it constantly. Disney World, grooming children for this. Adultery, abortion, drugs. Any and every evil under the sun, they're, they're promoting it constantly. We'd better wake up. We have a job to do. Tell the next generation about the things of God. There's a sad account in the book of Judges, an account of two generations, one, the generation of Joshua, and then the one that followed. Judges 2, 7 says this, the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, who had seen all the great work of the Lord. They saw God do great things, which he had done for Israel, and they served the Lord. That's great. So far, so good. <clears throat> but you go three verses later, Judges 2.10. It says, that generation died. There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. How sad. Somebody fumbled a baton along the way and didn't transfer the information about God from their generation to the next. Something went wrong. <clears throat> and whoever we might fall for that, I want to say this, our generation better not fail. Especially now, in this time in history, we better not fail. We better see to it the next generation knows of God's greatness. Look at verse 5. <clears throat> on, the glorious, <clears throat> on the glorious splendor of your majesty, David says, and on your wonderful works, I will meditate. Verse 6, men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts. I will tell of your greatness. Greatness of God, his person, his work. This is a subject for our meditation. This, we, ought to be, we have to give much time to thinking about this because it takes prolonged time and meditation to think about what God has done. <clears throat> to direct our attention to the scriptures to see what God has done, that's the greatest and highest and noblest activity our minds can, be, uh, can pursue. Think about that. What, what greater activity for your mind than to think about the greatness of God and what, he's done, what the scripture says about him? Look at the phrase in verse 5, on the glorious splendor of your majesty. This, this, I'll be honest with you, this psalm is beyond me. I can't, I can't do this psalm justice. Uh, the word glorious has the connotation of weighty, one who is worthy of honor. That's God. What a weighty subject is God. I can't begin to expound this subject. The word majesty means that for which a person is admired and celebrated. That's fitting language for a king. I mean, the, he's the king of kings. What admiration we should have for the Lord. What, what, we should celebrate him every day. No subject more worthy of our meditation than 
the person of God and his wonderful works, his majesty. And if we thought about him more and what he is doing, we wouldn't have the time or the inclination to be so self-absorbed, so selfish, so self-centered, or even, God forbid, thinking of our own self-exaltation. Why would we ever think about that? A God-centered life begins with a heart that meditates on the, our great God. And if we engage in this practice, if we engage in this practice, we can't help but set our affections on things above, not on things on the earth. All it takes is one cough for the water to get here. Thank you, Steve. Appreciate it. One cough. I love Steve, by the way. He's a great guy. Thanks, Steve, for that. Where was I? I have no idea. Uh, in verse 6, the awesome acts, men will speak. It says men will speak of these awesome acts. That, that includes acts of judgment, such as the global flood in Genesis, uh, such as the drowning of Pharaoh's men in the sea, uh, such as the plagues of Egypt. Those acts need to be spoken of, as well as acts of love and kindness God did. Both acts, both judgment and love of God need to be conveyed to the next generation. As for David, he was only too happy to speak of God's great greatness. He does it in such a fine way. He, God, he lets us know God is great in his person. He's great in his works. We should meditate on these things. And as a result, we should praise him, declare him, tell of him, uh, talk of him, speak of him. All the things, verses 3 to 6 says we should do. His greatness. But there's another reason of the countless reasons to exalt God. There's another one. Not only for his greatness, but for his goodness. In verses 7 to 10, his goodness. By the way, we're only going to get through about half this chapter today because this was designed that way. <laughs> anyway, God is not only great, he's, he's also good. Verse 7, back, then, back in the, when I was a kid, I remember we used to pray. I, by the way, I can't come up with a better prayer at lunchtime than this. Did you guys ever pray this when you were kids? God is good. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for this food. You ever heard, do you remember that prayer? Three of you remember that prayer. That's great. Um, <laughs> But let me tell you something. That came right out of Psalm 145. That's, that's tremendous theology. God is great. God is good. Let's be thankful for that. Great theology. But we're talking about God's goodness now. Uh, verse 7 speaks of his abundant goodness. Verse 9 speaks of his universal goodness. First of all, his goodness is abundant. Look at verse 7. I, they shall, the people that are talking to the next generation, they shall eager, eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness. Not just goodness, but abundant goodness. They'll shout joyfully of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great and loving kindness. God is not stingy toward his creation. He's not. He never has been, never will be. He's abundantly good. His goodness is overflowing. You can see that in so many ways. We've talked about common grace many times here. We should trumpet that news. Verse 7 says that they will, these, this generation speaking to the next generation, they shall eagerly utter this truth. Now, that's a rich phrase, eagerly utter. It means to pour forth or to gush forth or to bubble over. We should be eager, very eager, to speak of God's goodness. Not reluctant, but eager. Verse 7 says this truth should be in our memory. It should be so deeply lodged in our memory that it just comes forth from our mouth. We just talk about it. Jesus said, out of the heart the mouth speaks. Now, when I think of uh, God's goodness, I always think of the late Tim Borland. I actually worked with Tim Borland for a little while. How many of you people know Tim Borland? Here from, okay, good, the past. Tim was a, a great guy, probably the only salesman uh, in, in the uniform company I worked at. I was not a salesman. That was not a liar, Tim Borland, by the way. And you know what he used to say? 
He used to say, God is good all the time. You remember that, right? Those that knew Tim Borland used to say that all the time. He said that because the idea of God's goodness was lodged deep in his memory. That's what he thought about. So that's what he said. Verse 7 follows up on that thought by stating that people will shout joyfully of God's righteousness. The two go together, God's righteousness and his goodness. One, of the, one commentator said, the goodness and righteousness of God can never be separated. They're together. Righteousness without goodness should, would be harsh. And goodness without righteousness would be wrong. But God is, has both in a perfect balance. The balance that he knows is right. And so the, in this world filled with evil, we live in this evil world, uh, evil on every hand, with every man and woman a nature, uh, uh, rather a sinner by nature and by choice, with Satan running amok, we have one, only one real source of righteousness in this world to cling to, and that is God himself. He is righteous. In the New Testament, Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 5.21, or rather, yeah, 2 Corinthians 5.21, Christ knew no sin. We saw earlier he committed no sin. He knew no sin. He had nothing to do with sin. And from Christ's righteous character flows his righteousness. He credits, our, to our account, his righteousness, those that come to him for salvation. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him, he made Christ, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so we might become the righteousness of God in him. That offers for anyone who comes to Christ, who bows before him as Lord and Savior. God's righteousness, the text says here, is something to shout about, not keep quiet. This is not, this is not for a dry, dusty, systematic theology book somewhere. This is to, to, pro to proclaim to people, to publish out there for people to hear. This is meant to be a celebration of God's abundant goodness. And the celebration continues in verse 8. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. Now, if you're an Old Testament reader, you should be very familiar with these words. You've seen these words several times in the Old Testament. It originally came from Exodus 34, 6, when God passed before Moses. And he said this, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. What happened before that? Just prior to that, the people had lost their mind and built a golden calf and worshipped that instead of God. And God, as a result, had to judge them. But he could have wiped them out completely. But he did not. He, because of his righteous character, he did not. He did not abandon them because he's glorious. He's gracious, rather. He's merciful. Not a tyrant. Uh, he doesn't do things on a whim. He doesn't... Uh, uh, wears emotions on his sleeve. He's not like that. You think of Kim Jong-un, people like that. Those guys would have their whole country. Stalin killed many of his own people. God's not like that, not a tyrant. He's long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In verse 8, we have that word great again. Look at it. This time he's great in loving kindness. Loving kindness, that loyal, faithful love of God that he has to his people. He's great in that. That's in spite of our often disloyal, unfaithful lack of love to him. Do you see why it says he's great in loving kindness? He's abundant in goodness. He has to deal with this fallen human race. He has to be great in these things. He has to be abundant in these things. He's, we need grace that's greater than our sin. And God provides all that. Not only is his goodness abundant, but his goodness is also universal. Verse 9 and 10. The Lord is good to all. And his mercies are over all his works. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, or give praise to you. You can translate. And your godly ones shall bless you. He's not just good to some. He's good to all. He's good to the whole world. Does, do we not uh, breathe his air? 
and have his sunshine right, uh, on, the sun, on the just and the unjust and rain falling on the just and the unjust, the scripture says. He's good to all. In fact, the word all is used, I think, 13 times in this whole chapter, which tells us that his goodness, goodness is universal. The world benefits from what God does in this world, even if the vast majority reject him. He's still good to them. His mercies are, are over all his works. All that he does in the world, saturated with mercy, but God, they turn their back on God. It's amazing. But his intent is to be merciful. But the world chooses to live under the curse of sin. They could have the blessings of God, but they choose the curse of sin. Even though God, through the curse, shows mercy. Acts, Acts 17, 25. God himself gives to all life and breath and all things. Always showing this mercy to us, his universal goodness. According to verse 10, even the works of God praise him. They give thanks to him. The very works of God themselves praise God. For example, Psalm 19, 1, the heavens, the heavens are a work of God. They declare the glory of God. And if his works thank him, and if his works praise him, how much more his people should praise him. In the end of verse 10, your godly one shall bless you. God's creation, God's people, we should, this is the one focus we should have. Praise of God, praising him, glorifying him. While the ungodly are taking his name in vain, the godly ones should be blessing his name. You know, you've, I was on the work site all those years, I know what they do. I know how they take God's name in vain constantly. We should be blessing his name at the same time. God's goodness is abundant. God's goodness is universal. It touches everyone in some way. God is great. God is good. We should praise him for that. All believers share with, should share with David this heartfelt resolution. This should be a heartfelt resolution you have to do this. And there are more reasons to, do, to praise him. Many more. More than you can shake a stick at. 10,000 reasons, maybe even more. Definitely more. Now, there's much more to say in this chapter, but as I said, this message was originally designed for two parts, and that next one is for next Sunday night. That's when I normally preach. And we'll finish the chapter, Lord willing, then. But my prayer is that from Psalm 145, you'll realize what a wonderful Lord we serve. That's what it says all over the scriptures. If we'll just, if we'll just saturate our minds with the truth of what this says. We serve a wonderful God, and I pray that your hearts will desire to exalt him. He's worthy of our praise. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are thankful, we are grateful, Lord, that, that you love us, that you, you are good to us, you're grateful, to, you're gracious to us, you're, uh, that you're great in every way, Lord. We can't, uh, David couldn't seem to have enough vocabulary words to exalt you in this psalm. But Lord, we see what he's trying to do here, and we just pray for your, your uh, we, we just pray that we'll praise you, that we'll exalt you, that we'll love you with all our heart, soul, and mind, and strength, that we'll be people after your own heart, Lord. Transform us and make us such people. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.